If you uh, brought a Bible with you, we'll be looking again today at the book of Romans, chapter 13. Maybe you use your phone for that purpose. Whatever it is, if you want to look up Romans 13, 1 to 7, we'll be looking at that in a moment. Wrapping up our series today on gospel and government. We'll be looking at Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, because that's where the Apostle Paul writes with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit about governing authorities. So for 16 chapters, this book tells us about good news, that Jesus has come into the world to make God's grace available to us. In fact, at the very end of the book, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, when Paul, this pastor, evangelist, missionary, church planter, apostle, wants to summarize everything he could hope for those who read these chapters, he says it all this way. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Everything Everything that's been said here will come to fruition if the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ flourishes. What causes grace to flourish? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, the King over everything, over all things. And so, this whole book is about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ abounding and overflowing and flourishing and multiplying and increasing. But in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, it's about governing authorities. And that makes us ask the question, what in the world those two things have to do with each other? How, how is grace connected to politics? What is the relationship between gospel, and government? Well, if you're curious, let's dig in together. We're going to hear the scriptures read in a moment, and then we'll put these verses about governing authorities in that context of grace. Let's listen now as our member Sonia Hitchman reads for us from Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. All right, a little technical difficulty. Every person is subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, 
you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we have just said this is the word of the Lord. This is not human wisdom. It's not my opinion. It's not wishful thinking. Give us ears and hearts bent toward you, listening for your voice, listening to your word, listening with the intention to believe and practice all that you have for us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, look outside. You can ask the question today, when it rains, who gets wet? When the sun shines in Atlanta, who gets hot? That's the way we might ask the questions, but if you lived in the world of Jesus, we would ask, when it rains, who gets to eat? And when the sun shines, whose crops grow? Rain and sun were matters of God's blessing and grace and goodness. Life and death, flourishing versus starving. Jesus asked that question in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 45. He, he uh, said to those who were listening, part of the Sermon on the Mount, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You should desire good things even for those who don't share your faith. You should desire good things even for those who disagree with you about your spiritual commitments. You should desire good things even for those who persecute you, Jesus says in verse 44. Why? So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. This is the way that your kinship to God is demonstrated. You want good things for all people, no matter where they stand on your faith commitments, because that's what your father is like. And then Jesus used these questions about rain and sun, right, to, to prove his point. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust, because God is full of grace everyone gets to eat because God is full of grace. There's not a bubble that keeps rain from falling on wicked people and the rain falls on those who are good. God is full of grace. Christian theology calls this approach, this idea, common grace. We hinted at this a couple weeks ago. We'll come back to it now. Common grace is this notion that any time a human being enjoys something good, it is God's undeserved goodness coming into their life. And common grace says, well, this is God enabling people who are made in his image to flourish as his creatures in the world that he has made. Sun and rain, let us flourish. They give us food to eat. And so rather than starving, we eat. And rather than 
anxiety over whether the crops will grow. God answers that question through sun and rain, and He answers it for just and unjust alike, for the evil and the good, for those who are His sons and daughters and those who are not, for those who follow Jesus and commit their lives to Him and those who haven't. He's good that way. He wants us to flourish as His creatures. Common grace are these benefits of God, undeserved goodness. We didn't do anything to cause the rain to fall. We don't deserve for the sun to shine. We don't deserve to eat. We haven't earned that privilege. He's good. And He gives gifts to help us flourish as His creatures in His world. And common grace gifts are those that are a benefit to all people. So if we call this common grace, you can imagine that we're going to distinguish it from another kind of grace. Otherwise, we just call it grace. Common grace as distinct from saving grace. Saving grace is another category of God's undeserved goodness. When traitors against God, rebels who ought to love Him but love other things, when we put idols in place of Him and we alienate ourselves from Him, when we come under His judgment, well, it's undeserved goodness that He forgives our sin, and it's undeserved goodness that He breathes new life into us through His Holy Spirit. It is undeserved goodness that He gives Jesus to be our Redeemer and Savior. So common grace and saving grace have this shared component. They are both categories of God showing undeserved goodness to people who desperately need Him to act. In this case, though, saving grace doesn't enable us to flourish as God's creatures only, but, but to flourish as His children. So a couple weeks ago, we used the illustration of a birthday party, right? Everybody at the party gets cake, even though only one person's having a birthday. So God is our Father. We relate to Him, not just as a guest at the party, but the guest of honor. We are His children when He breathes this new spiritual life into us and pardons our sin and brings us back to Himself so that we flourish not only in this life, but in the next not only this world, but in the renewed world once Jesus returns. Saving grace benefits everybody who trusts in Jesus. Common grace benefits everybody who lives on this planet. Whether they have faith in Jesus or not, saving grace is a category of God's blessing that benefits those who are His children and who have become His children as they've come to Him through faith in Jesus. What I want us to see this morning is that God is the one who has designed both of these spheres of grace. So I, I'm not good at drawing spheres, so we're going to let circles stand in. God designed both of these spheres of grace, of saving grace and of common grace. And everybody who experiences saving grace is living in a world that's full of common grace. If you know Jesus, if you have come to faith in Him, it's because you live in God's world. And you're experiencing all kinds of common grace blessings at the same time you're experiencing the blessings of saving grace. You have faith in Jesus, the rain falls on your head. <laughs> you're, you're experiencing life in both of those spheres at the same time. People who don't have faith in Jesus are experiencing life in that sphere of common grace. The rain still falls. 
on the just and the unjust alike. God designed both of these spheres of grace. And some of his gifts function in one of those spheres and some function in the other. The gift of faith and repentance and trust in Christ functions in the sphere of saving grace. The gift of of desiring to know God and see all of his glory and beauty through the word that he's given us, that's, that's a gift that operates inside that sphere of saving grace. There are other gifts that operate in the sphere of common grace. Jesus talks about sun and rain. Romans 13 talks about civil government, good leadership, just society. So all kinds of human relationships are gifts from God that function in the sphere of common grace. The relationship of friendship. Well, you're not a Christian, you don't get to have friends. No, that's not true. Friendship is a common grace gift from God who made us in his image to relate to him and to one another. Marriage, that's another common grace gift. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the benefits of committing your life to another person and remaining faithful to that commitment, all the joy that comes with that. That's a common grace gift. That's friendship, marriage. Those are two examples of human relationships that are common grace gifts. Romans 13 describes another. Government, just society. This too is a common grace gift from God. Verse 13 of chapter, of uh, uh, verse 1 of Romans 13. There is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. God is the one who has given this common grace gift of human society structured in such a way that we have laws and and rulers and leaders who pursue justice. Now, the world is still fallen and in need of grace. So the laws aren't all perfect, nor are they all justly enforced. Not all the leaders are wise. Not all the leaders are selfless as they ought to be. But still, these kinds of relationships are common grace gifts from God for the good of all people. Gifts of saving grace are for the good of all who trust Jesus. Gifts of common grace are for the good of all. And people who have experienced saving grace let me back up for a minute, want both spheres to flourish. That's really important because we're about to talk about four ways that that the gospel and government relationship goes wrong, and all of them result in people wanting the sphere of saving grace to flourish but forgetting the sphere of common grace. And so it's really important for us to hear Jesus say, that he is the Lord, and his lordship extends not only grace to those who trust him, but forms of common grace to all, even those who don't trust him. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. When the grace of Jesus is at work in our hearts, then we begin to want flourishing in both of these spheres. We want more people 
to hear the good news about Jesus and believe it and come to him in faith. We want the sphere of saving grace to flourish. We want Christian churches to thrive. We want Christian ministries and missionaries to flourish. We want that sphere to grow and thrive and multiply. But guess what? If we know the Lord of grace, then we want common grace to flourish as well. We don't want people to go hungry, whether they trust Jesus or not. We don't want people to be falsely imprisoned, whether they trust Jesus or not. We don't want people to be unemployed during COVID and not know where their next paycheck comes from, whether they trust Jesus or not. We want common grace to flourish because the Lord of saving grace has made us His. Now, the tendency oftentimes in Christian history is to divorce those two, separate the two spheres, and then think about the relationship between gospel and government in a way that that all the focus is put on the sphere of saving grace. And we forget common grace. What I want us to see this morning from Romans 13 is that's not a wise or healthy way for Christians to think about government. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the first relationship. So we're going to identify four approaches that aren't healthy and make our way to the one that's reflected here in Romans 13. First unhealthy approach, I call it this, government enforces gospel. Under this view of the gospel and government relationship, it's appropriate for governments to use force and violence and intimidation to coerce people to confess faith in Jesus. I would give it this label, fundamentalism, uh, and you could replace that word gospel with something else. Government enforces Islam. Government enforces nationalism. Right? We're going to get rid of all the impure Christians. We're going to drive them out of our nation by threatening them, persecuting them, arresting them, deporting them. We're going to get rid of everybody who's not pure white or everybody who's not pure fill in the name of your group. We're going to drive them out. It's the same pattern of using violence to cause grace to flourish. Now, that doesn't sound right, but that happens a lot through history. People who think, that, hey, the, the way to make the sphere of saving grace flourish is to have a government that makes people believe in saving grace. And what you get as a result is a relationship that looks like this. That sphere of saving grace, you're wanting to make it big, 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 big so that it includes everybody because everybody has confessed their faith in Jesus, right? Is it true faith? Probably not. If I confessed it at the end of a sword point <laughs> just to save my skin, maybe it's not really the result of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. But I'll say anything to keep from going to jail. But on this model, government's job is to bring everybody into the sphere of saving grace through violence or threat or intimidation so that that sphere of common grace, the number of people in it is shrinking all the time 
And some of them are even being pushed outside the sphere of that government. Go live in another nation if you want. If this is the, if this is the approach that Jesus intended, um, right, violence causes grace to flourish, <laughs> then why do all of the scriptures say it's Jesus who causes grace to flourish? Christians don't believe that violence causes grace to flourish. Jesus causes grace to flourish. We want that sphere of saving grace to grow and include as many people as possible, but we won't use violence or threat or intimidation to accomplish it. Romans would be a very short book if that was the approach, right? Forget Romans 1 through 12. We're going to start chapter 1 with government. You need a Christian Caesar, and he makes everybody become a Christian, and I don't have to be an apostle anymore. The government will make people love Jesus. That's clearly not the approach that Romans 13 is calling us to as we seek to see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ flourish. Okay, opposite extreme. Not government enforces gospel, but this time government pollutes gospel. This is the mindset adopted by many monks and nuns over the centuries, by many separatist groups, to some extent by Amish and Mennonite groups that would say, you know what, involvement in civic life and political life just corrupts your soul, it contaminates you. So the only way to have real spiritual maturity is you just have to withdraw from all of that. You have to create a separate little Christian bubble and live inside of it. That's why I would give this the name separatism. On this view, what's going to cause grace to flourish? Abandonment. What will cause the sphere of saving grace to flourish is if mature Christians just abandon the sphere of common grace and let it fend for itself. It's a little bit like God said, you know what? I need y'all to social distance and put on masks and wash your hands for a while, but the church hears everybody out there is infected, lock your doors and keep them locked and don't, don't let anybody in until Jesus comes back. Is it true that if we aren't wise about the ways that we engage in the sphere of common grace, that we could uh, fall into some temptation as believers in Jesus? Yeah, that's true. Do we need to be careful? about the ways we engage civic life and politics and government? Yes, we do. But the call here in Romans 13 is not, is not an approach that says it's abandoning the rest of the world that will cause our sphere of saving grace to flourish, right? It's like a diagram. It's going to look something like this. Keep the two spheres separate, and we want saving grace to really be healthy and it's not our place as Christians to worry about that sphere of common grace. Let it take care of itself. But Romans 13 says here that, that governing authorities are worthy of respect and honor. It doesn't say ignore them. It doesn't say avoid them. It doesn't say write them off, run away from them. It says, as a believer in Jesus, because you're inside that sphere of saving grace, 
you should be really interested in what's happening in that sphere of common grace. You should be engaged. You shouldn't abandon those on whom the rain falls and the sun shines, even if they don't share your faith. It's not abandonment that's going to cause that sphere of saving grace to flourish. It's Jesus. And when Jesus causes grace to flourish, it will benefit all who trust in him. It will also benefit, in many ways, those who don't trust in him. That's common grace. All right, one more approach. Don't do it this way. Government upholds gospel. This is the culture war approach that says politics and government policies are a tool that we can use to uphold the values of our specific religious group. So that common grace sphere out there of, of, of government and politics, there are a lot of other things in the common grace sphere like nature, rain, sun, and relationships, friendship, marriage. But one of those things is government politics. And it exists as a, as a platform for us to duke it out with everybody else. And um, we don't mind when common grace spheres flourish, but if there's ever any doubt, any tension, it's all out war. And we're going to grab as much power as we can and rewrite the laws to favor us because we're afraid that our religious group will lose its influence. And so you get this commitment to power that says if the sphere of saving grace is going to flourish, it's going to be because Christians amass as much political power as possible. And we use that power to set the stage in a way that favors us. What's so wrong about this approach is that it always leads to a posture of warfare and hostility. Where rather than saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm really glad the rain falls on those who don't share my faith in you. I rejoice that the sun shines, even on those who aren't believers in Jesus because that shows how good my Father is. I want so badly for people who don't share my faith to experience God's goodness that I will pray for those who persecute me. I will bless those who would consider themselves my enemies. That's what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew chapter 5. Don't shoot the messenger. You may not like hearing this. It's done. I'm just repeating what he said, okay? That's, after all, my calling. That's <laughs> what a preacher ought to do. Say what Jesus said. You don't see anything about the Scriptures that tell us that, you know what, the sphere of saving grace is going to flourish because of power. There's all these other groups out there, and we're fighting with them, and we're competing with them, and we want our power to increase, and that's what will make saving grace flourish. The work of Jesus will flourish if we can make Christian laws in our nation. You know what? The work of Jesus flourishes even in places where all the laws are written to persecute believers in Jesus. 
And yes, I will rejoice as a follower of Jesus when God's laws and the laws of my nation overlap. If they overlap in a way that benefits all citizens, that is, after all, the calling of the civil government, according to Romans 13, it's not to, it's not to favor one group over another. Romans 13 says to people who worship Roman gods and goddesses, provide justice for all who are in your empire, for those who believe in Jesus and for those who don't. Power will not make grace flourish. Jesus makes grace flourish. If we follow him, we want both the spheres of saving grace and common grace to flourish. Pastor, you're just not being realistic. You live in a bubble. You don't know how people treat us as Christians in this secular nation. We have to fight back. All right, let's fight back. But let's use Jesus' rules. Here's one of them from Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient when you endure tribulation. Here's another one of his rules for fighting back. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Here are Jesus' rules for fighting back. Repay no one evil for evil. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Don't seek revenge. Leave it to God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. How much more should we feed the one who just disagrees with us politically? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in Romans 13, 9, love your neighbor as yourself. Right in the middle of all these statements is this discussion of how Christians should think about governing authorities. And what you hear is not a strategy for seizing power. You don't hear that power causes grace to flourish. You hear Christ-like love, even for our enemies. That is the evidence that grace is flourishing. When we want everyone to flourish, not just those who are inside our sphere of power and influence. We trust a crucified and resurrected Savior. Resurrection involves power. Crucifixion rewrites what power means. Let's overwhelm our neighbors with mercy and goodness. Okay, last, last one we have to avoid. This is the most Presbyterian of them all. Government distracts from gospel. I'm giving this one a name. It's a name used for the past couple of centuries. A particular phrase called the spirituality of the church. 
This approach says, you know what, political and social issues divide the church. They distract us from our real calling. So political and social issues are fine for the life of the individual Christian to get engaged in. But the Christian community, we don't get engaged in those kinds of issues. Because what will cause the sphere of saving grace to flourish is if we avoid the issues that are out there in the world of common grace. Avoidance will cause grace to flourish. If there's tension between those two spheres, then we want the sphere of saving grace to flourish, and so we're going to remain silent about those issues out there in the world of common grace because they would distract us or divide us. So rather than risk that, we're just going to stay silent. This led many Christians in the 17, 18, and 1900s to avoid topics of slavery and racism in the U.S. And this church and this man, we are still paying the price for that silence and avoidance. I don't believe that this is what Jesus calls us to. Avoidance is not what will cause grace to flourish. Turning a blind eye to the issues that our neighbors are facing is not what will make us a healthier church. Silence doesn't make grace flourish. Jesus causes grace to flourish. And if I have not engaged in the issues facing my neighbors, it's often because I'm afraid my Jesus can't handle issues that hard. My Jesus is too little. I'm not trusting the real Jesus because the real Jesus is not too little and there's nothing too hard for him. He calls us to trust him. Can I just point out that Romans 13, 1 through 7, dealing with issues of politics and government, it was written to be read in the worship of the Christian community. It was not advice for the individual Christian because that's over there, but as a community we don't talk about these things. We do talk about these things as a community because it's right here in the scriptures that we read in our community worship. It even deals with this issue of paying taxes and revenue, the two kinds of fees and taxes collected by the Roman government. And there was a big debate around the time this letter was written about whether revenues were appropriate to be collected by the government. Paul is actually addressing a first-century political debate that divided his empire right here. Why? When you know saving grace, you want both spheres of grace to flourish. Gospel and government, I'm going to turn this thing off for now. So, Ronnie, if you could just put up a blank slide. Um, Gospel and government are linked by grace. Gospel is the sphere of saving grace. We have access to that grace because of Jesus. Government is one of the good gifts in the sphere of common grace. It can be misused and mishandled, so it's not always experienced as good. Just as friendship can be abused, but friendship itself is good. And just as marriage can be unhealthy, but, but marriage itself as a gift is good. 
So government is a good gift. And Jesus intends it to flourish in such a way that even those who don't believe in him, even those who persecute his followers would still experience the good that comes from just laws and a just society and wise leadership. So as believers in Jesus, we want both spheres to flourish. We don't confuse the two. Politics is not my faith. Policy is not my creed. But we don't avoid the issues that are affecting our neighbors either. I have many neighbors who don't share my faith, and I want them to flourish because I believe in Jesus. That's the posture of the believer in Christ. It's precisely because of my faith in Jesus that I want common grace to abound. And so I want government to work well, and I want political issues to be addressed with wisdom and mercy. You know the song Amazing Grace? It was written by John Newton. You may know his story. English man. He worked on a ship transporting enslaved Africans across the Atlantic Ocean. Later in life, he became a believer in Jesus, eventually became a pastor. A young politician came to him for advice. His name was William Wilberforce. Should I stay in politics or should I too become a pastor like you? John Newton's advice was, serve God where you are. You're a member of the British Parliament. Serve God there. Wilberforce, with Newton as a partner, led the movement to abolish slavery in the British Empire. That had a ripple effect around the whole world. It came centuries too late, and it did not undo all the damage that was done before abolition became a reality. But praise God for a pastor who said, serve God where you are. And for a politician who didn't write laws that set Christian slaves free, but who wrote laws that set all slaves free, regardless of their faith, who wrote laws that had an impact on believers in Jesus, but also had an impact on those who were enemies of the cause of Jesus. Because when you know amazing grace from Jesus, your Savior, you want every place and every person over whom he reigns to flourish. Through the gifts of saving grace, as many as possible to hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus. But even those who refuse to come to faith in him, who persecute faith in him, still we want their lives to flourish too. Why? Because we know that it's not through power, and it's not through abandonment or withdrawal, it's not through avoidance and silence and turning a blind eye, and it's not through violence and coercion, but it's through Jesus that grace flourishes. 
We believe that. Let's learn how to live that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, give us the courage. Some of us need the courage to stand up and say, this is what I've always believed, and I'm going to stand even more firmly on it than ever. Some of us need the courage to stand up and say, ooh, I've been standing in a dangerous place. I need to repent. Some of us have abandoned our neighbors. We've been silent about too many things for too long. Would you give us courage? Would you give us this vision of grace that says we are so happy that the rain falls on all, that the sun shines on all. We delight when those who disagree with us, who oppose us, persecute us, flourish because our hearts have been captivated by the Lord of grace. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.